2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin reading at verse 13, and it'll be on the screen so we can all read the same version together. Let's read the word of the Lord together. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, Lord. We thank you for your presence that we've experienced in this house in worship. Now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive not so much what the preacher is going to say, but what the Spirit is going to say to us in the midst of the preaching. Use this time, O oh Lord, to encourage, inspire, challenge, convict, and transform our lives through the work of your spirit as the word goes forth. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray especially today for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I particularly pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. And I ask, O oh Lord, that you will draw them back to your side. Don't let one of them be lost. We pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In July of 1961, 38 players on the Green Bay Packers football team assembled for the first day of training camp for the new season. The prior season had ended in a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after blowing a lead in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game. When the players arrived for training camp, they expected to immediately begin where they left off and work on ways to advance their game and learn new innovative plays dreamed up by the coaching staff to enable them to win the championship in the new season. Settling into their seats, they looked expectantly as Coach Vince Lombardi walked in to begin the session. After surveying the room, Coach Lombardi held up a football and said, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> he then had everyone open their playbooks to page one, where they began to review the fundamentals blocking, tackling, throwing, catching. Now, that was clearly not what players at the top of their game expected, but this hyper-focus on fundamentals allowed them to win the NFL championship that season 37 to nothing against the New York Giants. Vince Lombardi went on to win five NFL championships in seven years, he never coached a team with a losing season after that and never lost a playoff game again. 
No matter what the field of expertise, the most successful people you can think of never stop working on the fundamentals. What was true for Vince Lombardi and his team in football is also true for us as followers of Jesus. If we are going to be successful and get to the next level in our walk with the Lord, we don't need a special prophetic word spoken of, uh, over us. We don't need a high-powered evangelist to lay hands on us in prayer. We don't need another seminar or conference or revival service or camp meeting. Instead, if we are going to live the overcoming life, we are going to need to be hyper-focused on the fundamentals. Over the next few weeks, this is what I want to talk to you about. Right at the beginning of this new year, this new season, I want, you to, I want to point you to the fundamentals of our faith. I want us to get back to basics, all right? With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. This is the beginning point. This is the playbook. This is the definitive guide for those who are followers of Jesus. This is the source of absolute truth and ultimate authority for our lives. This is our sole infallible rule for faith and practice. Now, I know this is not a popular position in our modern culture. Today, we're being told you can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions. We're told you can't trust the Bible because it's very old and irrelevant to a modern world. You can't trust the Bible in its present form because it has been copied and translated so many times that its words and message have been corrupted from the original meaning. You can't trust the Bible because the stories in it are like myths. They might contain some good morals, but the stories are fables that can't be trusted in any kind of historical sense. You can't trust the Bible as being authoritative and definitive because there are a lot of other books written about the real Jesus of history, and they got left out of the official canon by the religious elite trying to control the narrative. You can't, you can't trust the Bible to be the only correct religious book because there are so many other religious books that contain some truth as well, and they all contain some error alongside the truth. In the face of these arguments and many others being presented with such certainty in the marketplace and in the classroom, the Word of God rises up and proclaims in the words of our text in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Amen. Now, this verse comes from the second letter to Timothy and is part of the last words of the Apostle Paul. Sitting in a jail cell in Rome, soon to be executed, Paul writes this letter to his son in the faith, a young anxious pastor in Ephesus named Timothy. We know from chapter one of this letter that Timothy's father was Greek. However, his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice were Jews, and thus he was intentionally taught the scriptures, which for him would have been the Old Testament, by them and trained in the faith starting when he was five years old. 
Chapter three of this letter begins with Paul telling young Timothy that the world is heading toward perilous, difficult times. He says it's going to get darker by the day, and as believers and leaders of the church, he's going to need to be vigilant against the godlessness of this age. Then he tells Timothy how he is going to be able to handle that kind of pressure. It's the same way you are able to handle the pressure you're facing today. It's through the foundation of the Word of God. When Paul says in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired is theopneusos. I said that wrong. Theopneustos. It is from theos, meaning God, and pneo, meaning breath. And what he's literally saying is all scripture is God-breathed. It means the source of all scripture is God. And it is the scriptures that set the standard for how to get into a right relationship with God and then how to live a life that is pleasing to him. If you're going to make it as an overcomer in this world, you need to read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, internalize it, talk about it, proclaim it, and most important, live by it. In the face of those who under the guise of enlightenment and academic acumen are so vocal in denying the truth and the authority and the power of the Bible, I want to once again hold up this book and proclaim this is a Bible. It is God-breathed. It is God-inspired. It is God's definitive message to this world. In spite of what you may hear, I want to assert without any reservation that the Bible is a reliable, accurate, and authoritative book. The reason I declare that with such confidence is first because the Bible is positively trustworthy. Let me tell you, it is trustworthy in its scientific accuracy. Now, the Bible is not a science book. But when it speaks to matters of science, it does so with accuracy. You know, in ancient times, there was a disagreement among people about the nature of our planet. There was one large group of people who were convinced the earth was flat. In fact, I've discovered there's still some of those people hanging around today. (laughs) Go figure. These... These people speculated about how the earth managed to stay suspended in space, and there was a great deal of fear about what would happen if you managed to get to the edge of the earth. There were even maps drawn which illustrated the known areas, but then beyond the borders of what had been explored, they had written, beyond these borders, there be dragons. (laughs) Long before Pythagoras or Aristotle or Aristosthenes or any of the others who were doing calculations about the shape and the size of the earth, the Bible was saying something about this issue. Did you know that? Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And in chapter 26, verses 7 through 10 of that book, the great works of God are described in picturesque language by Job like this. He said, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. 
He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. Watch this. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The wise preacher of Ecclesiastes had this to say in chapter 1, verse 6. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. The prophet proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 20 and 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Not only is the Bible accurate in its statements about the shape of this planet, but it is also way ahead of the science in its statements about creation. You know, science is pretty consistent in its assertion that the universe began from an infinitely tiny point called singularity in an event commonly described as the Big Bang. Now, many in the scientific fields of study are atheists or agnostics. And while they might admit that all the research points to a first cause, they would resist the idea that this first cause is God. However, the idea of an uncaused first cause for the universe sounds an awful lot to me like what the Bible records in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. And it is only by faith that our minds accept as fact that the whole universe was formed by God's command, that the world which we can see has come into being through what is invisible. See, science will talk about the universe coming into existence at a point of singularity through the event of the Big Bang, but it isn't able to give a reason for that explosion. Neither can it identify the cause that sets everything in motion. (laughs) The Bible, however, would affirm the scientific discovery while at the same time give both a reason for the creation and give an identity to the source when it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, Edwin Hubble observed that the universe is expanding, stretching out from an infinitely tiny point of singularity. In that affirmation, we hear echoes of Isaiah 40, 22, where the prophet proclaims, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Well, not only is there congruency between science and the Bible on matters of creation, but this same consistency holds true regarding the matter of time. Albert Einstein's theory of relativity says there's no absolute passage of time. It varies as opposed to being fixed. This principle of time dilation is why atomic clocks on Earth run slightly slower than those on GPS satellites. This is why astronauts age at slightly slower rates while traveling in space. Well, nearly 2,000 years before Einstein's theory was formulated, the Bible was already saying God views time differently than we do. That's why the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 and 8, to the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That's why, 
I don't know why people get all hot and bothered and anxious about there being some, some discrepancy between science and the Bible. There really isn't. There's no disagreement between the Genesis account and the scientific description of the development of the universe. When science tells us it occurs over billions of years, the Bible talks about it happening in days. However, the Hebrew word yom, translated as day, can mean a 24-hour period, but it can also mean an era or an age. The point is, the Bible reveals that God views time differently than we do. And that's because he's the creator and the originator of time. God stands a part of and outside of time. And I gotta tell you right now, there's a preacher inside of me struggling to get out right now to tell you that this is how God can be in your yesterday and your today and your tomorrow all at the same time. See, that's why you don't need... Oh, help me, Jesus. That's why you don't need to be afraid of what tomorrow holds because the same God who has redeemed your yesterday and the same God who is helping you today is the same God who is already in your tomorrow orchestrating the details of your destiny. I got to tell somebody that the same God who saw you through your past and the same God who is supplying your need in the present is the same God who has already provided for your future. Hallelujah. Well, well, that isn't the purpose or the scope of this message today, but I think it's a good place for somebody to just take a moment and praise the Lord. Would you do that right now? Hallelujah. I'm trying to control myself right now. I'm just, because I, I, I want to walk you through this stuff. Not only is the Bible true because of its scientific accuracy, but then I would tell you the Bible is trustworthy because of its historical accuracy. You know, it isn't entirely correct to refer to the Bible as a book in the same way you would refer to a novel or even another religious work as a book. In reality, the Bible is a library, or, or, or it's a compilation of 66 books. Some of them not even really books, more accurately, letters. And some of those, some of those letters are so small, they'd better be, they would be better characterized as postcards. <laughs> These individual documents were written over a period of about 1,600 years by 40 different authors on three continents in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic on hundreds of subjects. None of the writers were consciously or intentionally aware they were writing something that would be included in what we know as the Bible. They didn't collaborate. They didn't consult with one another. They didn't have a single person compiling all of it and then editing their writings to make them fit together as a unit. Amazingly, with all these different writers over such a long expanse of time in so many varied locations, there is a thematic unity running like a golden thread from the very first book of Genesis to the last book of the Revelation that cannot be humanly explained. The message of the Bible is consistent from cover to cover. It tells the story of God's great love for lost humanity. From the time of humanity's willful disobedience against God in chapter 3 of Genesis through the end of chapter 22 in the book of the Revelation, the Bible tells the story of redemption and restoration. It's a story of grace. 
It's a story of God taking the initiative and bridging the gap and reconciling fallen man with holy God. It's the story of God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves so that no one need perish but all can be saved. You know, some of the New Testament writings were written within a mere 10 years after the events of the life of Jesus. And modern historians, even critical non-believing historians, are agreed that their writings are accurate historical records. Over and over again, the Bible refers to historical events, and the historical assertions it makes have been validated time and again. Many of the events, people, places, and customs in the New Testament are confirmed by secular historians who were contemporaries with New Testament writers. Secular historians like the Jewish Josephus, the Roman Tacitus, boy, I'm having trouble talking this morning. Y'all not praying hard enough. The Roman Tacitus, the Roman Suetonius, the Roman governor Plinus Secundus, they all make direct reference to Jesus or affirm one or more historical New Testament references. Historian Gary Habermas, who wrote The Historical Jesus, lists 39 ancient sources outside of the Bible that provide over 100 facts about Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection that are consistent with the biblical record. Renowned archaeologist Sir William M. Ramsey thought Luke was foolish as a storyteller and historian because he mentioned so many specific names, places, and dates. He made it his goal to disprove the historical reliability of the, of the writings in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. But watch this. After 30 years of studying, searching, and digging, Ramsey reached this conclusion. Luke is a historian of the first rank. He said, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Nelson Gluck, a leading Jewish archaeologist, said in his book, Rivers in the Desert, it can be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. In this message, I don't have time to talk about the Hittites or the Pool of Siloam or the archaeological evidence confirming the events of the books of Exodus and Joshua and places such as Shechem and Lachish and Gibeon and Jericho. Suffice it to say, every time a new discovery emerges from beneath ancient sands, it confirms the accuracy of the biblical texts. The Bible is trustworthy because of its scientific accuracy. It is trustworthy because of its historical accuracy. Third, I would tell you the Bible is trustworthy because of its prophetic accuracy. Of the 26 so-called holy books of various religions, the Bible is the only one containing predictive prophecy. Y'all doing okay? Am I, everybody all right out there? All right, I'm just, I'm just checking, you know. Poke your neighbor, make sure they're not asleep yet, all right? Some of the best naps people get in church while I'm preaching. About 25% of the Bible is predictive prophecy. In this book, we have messages written by prophets specifically chosen by God to whom he gave glimpses of future events for them to write down in Scripture. The, prophetic, the prophecies concerning the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem are truly remarkable in their scope and in the detail of their accuracy. You know, God promised his people from the time they entered the promised land of Canaan, if they would obey his commands and follow his paths, they would be blessed. However, 
If they refused to follow him, their disobedience would result in defeat at the hands of their enemies and being scattered among the nations. Right on the heels of that warning, however, almost in the next breath, God then spoke of their future restoration. He promised after exile, he would bring them back from captivity. He promised after destruction, they would rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. He promised they would plant vineyards and drink wine from them, and they would plant gardens and eat their produce. These predictions of the destruction of Israel, the Jews being scattered, and eventually the people of God being regathered to the land of Israel were written by several different prophets over a time spanning between 500 and 1,500 years before Jesus. And if you spend any time looking at the history of the nation of Israel, you find just how accurate these prophecies are. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and a million Jews were killed. Those who escaped the siege fled to other nations and for nearly 1,900 years, Israel didn't even exist. Jerusalem was a no man's land. Yet, in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet spoke of a restoration in which the dry bones scattered over the valley would come together once again. Flesh would attach to bone. The spirit of life would breathe into them, and they would rise up an exceeding great army. The prophet Isaiah saw a time in which this restoration would happen suddenly and would be like a miraculous birth. He said in Isaiah 66 and 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And then he said, as soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Now, that just seemed completely impossible until 1948, when overnight, with the stroke of a pen, Israel was once more established as a nation. The day she was granted a charter as a nation, she came under attack from her surrounding Arab neighbors who were intent on destroying her before she had an opportunity to become established. But miraculously, though outgunned and outmanned, she beat back her attackers. And time and again, she has been attacked by larger and better armed militias, but each time she has prevailed. Today, the Israeli military is second to none in the world. She has indeed risen up as a mighty army. You know, the prophets foretold of a time when Israel would be restored to her land and desert places would blossom like a rose. Well, I'll tell you, that's exactly what we see happening today. If you travel to Israel, you find the fields are fertile, the vines are productive, the crops are so bountiful she has sufficient to export to other lands. Against all odds, Israel is flourishing just like the Bible predicted. And then... There are the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. You know, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that describe the details of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. All of these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. And these prophecies are not vague references open to multiple interpretations. They are very specific descriptions. These are not things someone could intentionally contrive to fulfill. Most of them, like, like the place of his birth, the flight to Egypt as an infant, the manner of his death, just to name a few, they are totally beyond his control. The odds of even a few of these prophecies concerning Messiah coming, coming true in one person are staggering, much less 300 of them being fulfilled in one person. Peter Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, 
looked at the mathematical probability of one person fulfilling just eight specific prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. He gave the mathematical probability of these being fulfilled by one man at one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it, one in 100 quadrillion. To illustrate what this would look like, Stoner said, imagine silver dollars stacked two feet deep covering the state of Texas. And just one of those silver dollars had a mark on it. The probability of one person fulfilling only eight prophecies was the same as a blindfolded man being turned loose in the state of Texas and finding that one marked silver dollar on the first try. And yet every one of the prophecies is fulfilled down to the smallest detail. I'm telling you, the scientific accuracy, the historical accuracy, and the prophetic accuracy combine to provide convincing evidence the Bible is positively trustworthy. If you'll give me just about five more, 10 more, 15 more (laughs) minutes, I'll finish this up. Not only do I point you to the Bible as foundational for your life because it is positively trustworthy, I also want to point you there because the Bible is powerfully transformative. I like what the old preacher said about the Bible. He said, this book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, Its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Jesus is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life in Christ, and yes, to glory itself for eternity. Hallelujah. Most of you are no doubt familiar with the name of the late Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis. Lewis, you know, was an atheist. After hearing an atheist friend exclaim that the evidence for the Bible's truth was surprisingly good, Lewis decided to investigate and evaluate it for himself. See, Lewis understood Christianity is based on the truth of the Bible. If the Bible isn't true, then why should we believe anything it says about God, about Jesus, 
and about our purpose on earth. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. As an atheist, Lewis wanted to live without moral restraints, but realized if the Bible is true, he needed to personally respond to its message. So he decided to let the evidence speak for itself. After much study and examination, with a decidedly biased agenda to prove the Bible false, he concluded the Bible was indeed reliable and authoritative and true. Once he accepted the Bible as true, Lewis admits he came kicking and screaming to faith in Christ. I want to suggest to you that behind the virulent objections to the reliability of the Bible lies the same truth as was candidly admitted by C.S. Lewis. People don't want to believe the reliability of the Bible. For if the Bible is true, then it requires something of us that most of us are not willing to give. It requires a change in behavior, a change in purpose, a change in goals. Here's what I know. You can be a liar, a thief, and a murderer, and be religious and even spiritual. However, you cannot be a liar, a thief, or a murderer, and be biblical. You can be a glutton, a drunkard, a gossiper, and a swindler, and be religious and even spiritual. However, you cannot be a glutton, a drunkard, a gossiper, or a swindler, and be biblical. You can be a fornicator, an adulterer, a homosexual, a transgender, and be religious and spiritual. However, you cannot be a fornicator, an adulterer, a homosexual, or a transgender, and be biblical. Dearly beloved, the Bible isn't given for our consideration. It's given for our obedience. Instead of evaluating the Bible by our experience, we are called to evaluate our experience by the contents of his word. And watch this, watch this. At any place our experience or our feelings or our understanding is at odds with the message of the Bible, we bow our knee in submission to the authority of the Bible above our experience, feelings, and understanding. This is a Bible. It isn't a collection of academic propositions. It's a book of life. It accurately tells the story of a man, not just any man. It tells about Jesus, the Son of God. Because the Bible is reliable and authoritative, then Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, 
is reliable and authoritative. And this Jesus declares to every man, woman, boy, and girl, you must be born again. This Jesus declares, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this Jesus declares, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, will dine with him and he with me. Too many people are trying to build a life on what they feel or on what somebody else told them or on what the culture decides. And I tell you, that is the ultimate sinking sand. If you want to build a life that will stand the storms of life, build it upon the solid, unshakable foundation of the Word of God. If you want to be an overcomer, live by the Word of God. If you want to be pleasing to God and at the end of life receive His affirmation of well done, live by the Word. Live by the Word. Before we leave here today, I want to give an invitation for two groups of people. First, I want to speak to those who have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus. If the Bible's not true, then forget about it. Let's just all go home and do whatever we want to do. But if it's true, it makes demands on you. If you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, maybe you've been hesitant. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've been unsure if you could really trust the Bible and consequently unsure if you could really trust the Lord. Or maybe you've walked away from him. You walked with him for a while, but, but, but lately you, you've given in to doubt and drifted away. Perhaps today, Spirit has used this feeble attempt at explanation to open your heart to believe the truth of the Bible. And as a result... You're also ready to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. I want to tell you, your life can be transformed today as you surrender to Him. Second, I want every one of you to know that this Jesus stands with His arms outstretched with an invitation to anyone in need. Here's what He says to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So if you're one of the weary ones, if you've been beaten down by the cares of this life and you don't know how you're gonna make it, if you've reached the end of your rope and you aren't sure how much longer you can hang on, <laughs> Jesus stands ready to meet you, ready to touch you at the point of your need. In just a moment, we're gonna stand. And when we stand, I'm not going to wait around. I'm not going to prolong. I'm not going to beg and plead. You know if the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to your heart. And if He is, I'm going to ask you to respond. And here's how I'm going to ask you to respond. If you want to surrender your life to Jesus, or if you just find yourself in need of His special touch for your life, when we stand, I'm going to invite you to just step to the nearest aisle and come forward. We're going to pray and we're going to believe with you that Jesus is going to meet you here. Holy Spirit, 
thank you for your presence. Thank you for the grace of your help in this message. Now I ask you to do what I cannot do by human powers of persuasion. I ask that you will touch people's hearts and give them the courage to respond in faith. Thank you, Lord.